Hey, if you, if you have a Bible, keep it open there in John chapter 20. Good, good morning, by the way. All right, all right. good to see you all. Uh, you know, there are just some things in life that are harder to believe than others. You know, like, there, have you ever had that moment where you're just like, this is just a hard thing to believe? Um, our first couple of years as a married couple, we owed on taxes. Like, we even went and saw a tax guy, and like every subsequent year, it just seemed like we owed more, and like something there was broken. And it wasn't, anyways. So, um, eventually, we got like, we, we came to our senses. We got a clue and uh, did this little thing called TurboTax. And uh, if you've done TurboTax, you know that there's this little number, like the federal number and the state number, up in the right corner of your screen, and it either goes red if you owe or green if you're getting money back, right? And so for us, like, it started off kind of, you know, low and then, like, kept clicking boxes and going through and it was green and it stayed green and it, like, went up and then we had some more kids and it kept going up and we're like, let's have another kid and it keeps... No, I'm just and then, like, it just kept kind of, like, going up and it stayed up and we just thought, like, surely we have made a mistake. Like, something is wrong. Like, it just went against our experience. Our experience told us, like... Every spring you get hosed, and now all of a sudden, like, every spring it's like savings account or something, right? And it's actually really cool. Um, but we just, it, it just stretched the bounds of what seemed credible for us. And so, at first year, it just seemed like we, we just assumed we must have made a mistake. And, and the truth is that, like, so often believing in Jesus is not an easy thing to believe. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's really quite difficult to believe that the hope of Easter is, uh, you know, this triumph over death is actually real. It just seems almost too good to be true that maybe in believing we've made a mistake. And so today we're going to be looking at what happened on one particular day, uh, a week after Easter, the Sunday after Easter. We're going to be looking at what happened on that day, uh, where we find the story of Thomas, right? often called Doubting Thomas, not to be confused with Downton Thomas. Uh, <laughs> sorry, it was a really cheap joke, but I've been waiting all week for that. So um, I tried it on Dave, like I turned my screen around like... And he's like, that's, that's bad, man. So anyways, all right. Um, so the thing about Thomas is he's this guy who has these very honest doubts, right? He's, he's, he's a guy with honest doubts about the whole message of a resurrected Jesus. So, like, who can blame him, right? Like, who can blame this guy? I mean, he had put so much hope alongside his friends in this Jesus that he would be Messiah, and then his hopes are dashed on Friday, and Sunday comes around and it just seems incredible to him. And um, I mean, we all know dead people stay dead. In fact, people have known that dead people stay dead long before us. Right? And so this was an interesting moment. And uh, I mean, it, 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 uh, it stretches the bounds of what we know, right? That this man who is dead can be an alive person who shows up in your locked room and announces peace to the people who left him in his hour of need. And here he is. And, and so this morning, we're going to take an honest look at Thomas's questions. And, and hopefully we'll discover that he's been improperly named. I think, in fact, he's better to be named Believing Thomas or Thomas the Believer. And so with that, let's get into the story and see how it actually addresses a few things. Really, what happened on Easter morning and how we know it. Um, how to deal with our doubts and then also how we can believe in the living God. 
Okay? It's going to kind of meander through the text a little bit, so fasten your seatbelts and just kind of get ready to think with me, okay? Um, let's dive right in, looking first at what happened on that first Easter Sunday and how do we know? Right? The Thomas story helps us get specific here. Look at verse 24 with me. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, right? So he's included in this group of core disciples. Actually, it's like 11 now because Judas is dead and Thomas is is, is, was missing this first week, so it was ten that week. So now that Thomas, who's one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. He wasn't there on Easter Sunday. He missed church and lo and behold, he missed Jesus. So, that's a whole nother sermon, but don't, like, don't, don't miss the implications of this. Right? You want to be here. Um, uh, and so he, he wasn't there when Jesus came. And, and so the other disciples told him, or rather the tense here is they kept on telling him, they told him that we have seen the Lord. All right? We've seen the Lord. And so John tells us that first Easter week, all the disciples met Jesus. Uh, they interacted with Jesus. And John is missing in action, but they kept on telling him what they had seen. So what did they mean, we've seen the Lord? Did they mean we've seen a ghost, we've seen this apparition? Did, did they mean maybe that they just kind of had this sense, an impression, a vision, if you will, that Jesus is okay now because he's with God in heaven? What did they mean by we've seen the Lord? Uh, the, the phrase we've seen the Lord is a way of paraphrasing the entire Easter message, which is simply this. Jesus is alive. Right? Jesus is actually alive and like we've, we've seen him right, with our eyes. And um, without this message, Christianity is actually gutted, disemboweled of its substance. And, and so this message, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is what he says that he delivered as of first importance. He says this in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, uh, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive at the time of writing. Right? Uh, Though some have fallen asleep, or they're dead now. Right? Uh, which, by the way, is what got them writing all of this down to begin with. Like, oh, our eyewitnesses are dying. We should get this written down. Right? So now you have a New Testament. Right? That includes the Gospels. And so he says, uh, he appeared to more than 500 of us at one time, most of whom are still alive. You can go check it out, run a background check, and some of them are dead. Then he appeared to James and then to, uh, to all the apostles. And last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. This is his story in Acts chapter 9 on his road to Damascus, where he meets the risen Christ. And he follows this up uh, with verse 17. Um, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have died in Christ, fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. All right, so Paul is saying this is the central claim of the eyewitnesses on that Easter Sunday. It's a central claim of the Christian faith that Jesus is alive, right? And, and it wasn't an otherworldly religion where, where uh, it was just good for you when you died. It wasn't a faith, but it was actually a faith grounded in real historical events with real historical eyewitnesses that you could go talk to. And this wasn't, as some Jesus scholars say, um, just a, a, a term for saying that Jesus was with God and we felt good about it in our hearts, right? That somehow he was alive in our hearts. But it was actually resurrection, a real, physical, reanimated, actual Jesus of Nazareth who had been killed and is now fully, physically alive. This is what they were saying when they said, we've seen the Lord. 
And so, by the way, resurrection, this is a quick aside, but this is important to realize here, that resurrection was something far more significant in a Jewish mind than it would be necessarily for us. We hear resurrection and we think, well, that's kind of a parlor trick or a cool miracle. But for them, resurrection was part of a grand narrative. And for them, resurrection was something, according to the ancient Jewish mind, that was going to happen when God had brought history to its conclusion. That when history reached its goal, he would judge and remake the world and our bodies would be resurrected, that the people of God would be raised. And so that's why Martha says to uh, Jesus in John chapter 11 about her brother Lazarus who had died, she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Right? So in the Jewish framework, resurrection meant that the end had come, that at last new creation or remade, repurposed, refurbished earth And bodies had come, and that God's kingdom was finally and fully here, and it was a single event. But the thing is, nobody expected the Messiah to die to begin with, especially at the hands of the Romans, let alone to be resurrected in advance of the resurrection, the last day. And so it was a bit of a stretch for Thomas to hear, in a sense, that we've seen the Lord, which means that the resurrection had already happened He was questioning the entire story that Jesus had actually been the Messiah even though he was killed and that he was vindicated through resurrection already and that God's kingdom had actually already broken into our world, was launched and inaugurated in the present. And Thomas is like, hold on a minute. That's a lot to swallow. And so this is precisely the message that the apostles had been telling Thomas and they said, we're eyewitnesses to this. And so John actually even includes this Thomas story as the climax to his gospel to show how much Jesus pulled out all the stops to give his apostles every kind of evidence that it was in fact him physically alive again. So much so that John will say later in his epistle, 1 John 1.1, he says, that which was from the beginning, remember that's John's way of talking about Jesus, that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, right? the Word was God. So that which was from the beginning, i.e. Jesus, all right, we have heard, right? you do that with your ears, right? which we have seen, you do that with your eyes, which we've looked upon, which we've touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father has been made manifest to us. They're saying, look, we're eyewitnesses. And so these other ten disciples were eyewitnesses to the resurrection and they kept on telling Thomas what they'd seen. In fact, to be an apostle meant that you were an actual eyewitness to the resurrection. And it was so important for Thomas to have a meeting with Jesus because anybody could pass on teaching. But teaching says, try your best. The gospel says, look what God's done. And so Thomas had to have an interview with Jesus. He had to actually meet him to become an eyewitness of what happened, not just what was said. And so for a week, Thomas is just like us. He's faced with a choice to accept or reject the eyewitness testimony. So what happened on Easter was that the crucified God triumphed over death. And how we know it is that there were eyewitnesses. But until Thomas becomes an eyewitness himself, he's got his doubts, doesn't he? Listen to what he says. He says to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
And so Thomas's story doesn't just tell us what happened on Easter and how we know it, but it tells us how to deal with our doubts. I remember my freshman year of college, um, I had kind of been pretty confident about my faith as a, this high school student, right? So I was uh, sharing my faith and uh, with friends, and I was serving in church, and uh, I was even studying for ministry. It was a Bible college, for crying out loud. And I just remember all of a sudden, I had so many more questions than I had answers. I was getting undone by things I didn't know. And it was, uh, it was like this plaguing sense that everything I had put my life into was just, I think it's fabricated. Like I just, I just like knew it in my guts. Like I don't think this is real or true. And it just seemed so real. And, I, and so often the, the church is like the last place you want to live with your questions and share your doubts, isn't it? Like so often the church becomes the, the, the least helpful place to our questions. And unfortunately, some of you have had those kinds of experiences where you've been made to feel shameful or guilty for having doubt or having questions. And uh, you've just been told, chill out and get over it and believe. And a significant part of the story of Thomas is that it helps us in our doubts because it shows us how to deal with them without condemning the questions. We see a couple things here that I want to show you from Thomas. The first thing is Thomas gives himself space to question. Notice this. Like, uh, this might actually sound wrong, given that the entire book of John is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. But can you really say that you believe something if you haven't stopped to actually think through the implications of your faith? Can you really say, like, I, I, I trust something if you haven't allowed for pushback to hear the alternative? To give, to give space to the question that could undo the thing you're actually trusting? Because I, I think otherwise what you believe is completely untested at that point. Um, not that bumper stickers are really worth engaging, but um, right, we all see these like nonsense things slapped onto the back of cars, right? Things like, God said it, I believe it. Really? It's that easy for you, huh? Hmm. Or like the Jesus fish swallowing the Darwin fish. Like, is that even a coherent thought? Like, what? I don't think that is anything. Like, that's just... Anyway, so the doubt, like, helps us on our path to devotion. Doubt's actually a friend to devotion because it actually causes us to test what we believe. And so when questions emerge, we're actually in a place where we have an opportunity to live into them. There's this quote um, from uh, the poet uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, um, probably one of the most famous quotes from her book, Letters to a Young Poet, which I found on my bookshelf. Like, apparently my wife had this book that I'd been quoting in a couple messages. Anyway, good job, Laura. Um, anyway, uh, now I lost it. Here we go. Okay, she says this. I would like to beg you, dear sir, as well as I can, uh, to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart. And try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now and perhaps then someday, far in the future, you will gradually, without perhaps even noticing it, live your way into the answer. Now, I like a lot about this quote. Um, Mostly this notion of living your way into an answer. 
It's like testing your faith. Um, I also like the idea of learning to love the questions. Right? Of course, I, I'd push back here on this idea of not searching for the answers. I think God, while hidden at times, is also a God of revelation. He reveals himself. And so we should search for answers, for sure. But do you have questions? Do you, do you allow questions to sit on your heart and in your mind? And to maybe even threaten what you feel most secure about. Um, doubts, maybe, that give, if you gave space to them, would undo you. D- do you have those? A uh, better question is, is your concept of God actually big enough to handle those doubts? Is your God concept big enough to be able to deal with the questions? And I think that for Thomas, he was in a place where he was in search for the real Jesus. I'll talk more about that in a second. But I think that Thomas, the ever so dour realist, knew that Jesus, if he was alive at all, could actually handle his request. So let me just say this this morning. Don't kick yourself for the questions or for the doubt. Also, don't stop yourself from asking them. But trust that God can handle it and might actually want to use doubt in your life to grow your devotion to him. Maybe it's even by design. The second thing that I want to learn from Thomas is that he sets an example of actually an honest search for truth. Notice his question. He says, unless I see right, his nail marks and the hole in his side, he goes, I, then I, I don't think I can believe. Um, what's he asking? Right? He's really asking, this, this person you're talking about, you guys, is it really Jesus? Because I know how much you guys hoped in him, because I hoped in him like that too. But now you're saying he's alive, but we know he's dead. And I, and I think he really wants to push past wishful thinking. He doesn't want to be caught being naive, and he's anything but naive. Because remember back in John 11, Jesus wants his disciples to go with him to Jerusalem. And he's like, yeah, we might as well go. We're probably all going to die. Right? Like, Thomas is not necessarily an optimist, is he? <laughs> But he's a guy who, he wants what's real. And so he pushes into it here, I think. And so doubt helps us on the path to devotion when it serves the search for truth. And Thomas shows us the value of doubt by refusing to buy into wishful thinking, by refusing to buy na- be naive. But then Thomas is also very specific about what he wants to see. His demand reveals that he's looking for Jesus. And so it's like, what you're saying, you guys, is too huge. I can't buy it without evidence. And so he's looking for a historical and scientific way of actually knowing that this is Jesus, and he'll end up with both kinds of knowledge included in something that transcends both kinds of knowledge, which is actually faith. And, and so uh, with my own doubt, it was this, this question of, really, did the resurrection happen, and can we really know it, was huge on my own heart. Is the Bible really a reliable witness to what actually happened back there? And, and so I, I was left only with this. I have to deconstruct my own doubts, which is really the only honest way to seek for truth. So you have to be as brutal with your doubts as the thing that you're questioning, if you're really seeking truth. And you have to allow your doubts to actually mess with everything you're looking at. And so one author says this, the only way to doubt Christianity rightly and fairly is to discern the alternate belief under each of your doubts and then ask yourself uh, what reasons you have for believing it. How do you know your belief is true? It, It would be inconsistent to require more justification for Christian belief than you do for your own. 
But that is frequently what happens. In fairness, you must doubt your doubts. My thesis is that if you come to recognize the beliefs on which your doubts about Christianity are based, and if you seek as much proof for those beliefs as you seek from Christians for theirs, you will discover that your doubts are not as solid as they first appeared. This is a really remarkable thought, isn't it? There's this great um, description of um, in, in the book A Severe Mercy um, by Sheldon Van Auken, where he's talking about his own journey towards faith. He's a friend of C.S. Lewis's, and he was saying in this book that he started out with this place where he just he could not make the leap to trust Christ. That, that there didn't seem a way to plausibly prove the resurrection, and so the more he sat with the question of faith in Christ. He, he, he says it was like he was out in the middle where he began to look back and said, I can't also prove that Christ didn't rise. So either way, he realized I'm forced with some jump of trust one direction or the other. Because he deconstructed his doubts. And this is so vital for us. So to seek truth is really the noblest use of doubt. And when we refuse to be taken in by a bias or by a wish but to actually lean into what's true. But to seek truth means you actually have to be open to an answer. You know that, right? If you're really seeking truth, it doesn't mean continually deferring to more and more questions, but you actually have to be open to an answer. And it might be very unsettling. You might find that there's a God there who wants to relate. But there's also much less noble applications of doubt that I've noticed in my life and plenty of others as well. And we always have to be on guard against some of these um, now, both of which, actually, I'll describe are ways of seeking self rather than truth. And so very often I find that the deep questions or this overarching sense of doubt is actually masking something else underneath. Um, two, two things in particular that stand out to me. One is oftentimes doubt and questions become a smokescreen for just sheer laziness. Just total laziness, right? Because it's so much easier to just sit on the fence of doubt than to actually do the work of looking for what's true, real, and good. It's just... I mean, that's just the easy option. Anybody can just sit there and critique somebody else's worldview that they don't really understand, but to seek truth actually requires getting into positions where you have to be a learner and where you have to do some hard work. And so maybe that's you today, actually. You, you, you find that you have these doubts about a loving God, and it stops you from believing, but if you're honest, you haven't given him the time and energy to show you otherwise. And then there's this other thing we tend to mask too. And this is this seeking control. See, postponing belief can be a great tactic to manage and run our own life. See, m many times we throw up a problem and we're unwilling to hear an answer or give an answer a chance because we'd rather not have to deal with a God who can call me to account or summon my allegiance. And so like laziness that refuses to do the hard work of seeking... This isn't really doubt either. It's actually just a refusal to give up any authority in my life. And so it's one thing to have doubts. It's another thing to have no desire to move beyond them. Does that make sense? This is actually a really big deal, isn't it? So, but here, here's the beautiful thing about Thomas's story. Uh, not only does it show us what happened on Easter and how we know it and how to begin to engage and deal with our doubts, but he also shows us how to move into belief in a really profound way. In verse 26, it says, uh, Eight days later... His disciples uh, were inside again, right? In other words, like they're still afraid of Jewish leadership at this point, and uh, Thomas was now with them. He shows up at church. Good for him. Right? And Thomas was with them, and although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And Jesus now does for Thomas exactly what he did for the other 11 disciples. 
he shows up in their midst and he holds out his hands and he says, peace be with you. Right? And he does that for all of us. Right? He, the one who's been abandoned, the one who's been doubted, now comes and holds his arms out open and proclaims peace and intends peace to abound to all. Then verse 27, uh, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. The NIV says stop doubting and believe. It's actually literally, don't be an unbeliever, be a believer. This is how the Greek reads there. It's don't be an unbeliever, be a believer. Trust me. Uh, Caravaggio has his classic painting here from the 16th century, um, this image of Jesus graciously taking Thomas and guiding his hand into his side. Right, where, look, look at the, the kind of the patience and, and, and kindness of Jesus here. It's really remarkable. Um, too bad, actually, Caravaggio, I think, got it wrong because I don't think Thomas actually touches Jesus. Just, it's, a, it's still a beautiful picture, so you can sit with that for a minute. Um, so uh, what happens here in this, this, this painting is Jesus is inviting Thomas to search him out. And if Thomas shows us how to be a great doubter, it's because, honestly, he shows us how to be a great believer. Look at verse 28. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, You have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And this confession of Thomas, this guy who, on one moment, is full of doubt, and the next moment, he utters the highest description of Jesus that's found in the entire New Testament. He calls him my Lord and my God. So what, what John begins with in his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. And he says in 1.18 uh, that no one has seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Right? So he starts there, and his whole gospel reaches its conclusion now on the lips of Thomas, who now says, my Lord, which is this familiar term for Jesus, that he's his master, what they've been calling him all along. And then he now adds, my God. that you are the Word made flesh. But it's not just propositional truth, is it? It's personal. He says, you're my Lord and my God. It's an embrace of faith and belief. So how do you get there? How do you get to this place where you're like Thomas? You can deal with your doubts, but you can also deal with Jesus in a way that embraces him in true belief. Let me offer just four things today that I think are helpful, kind of borderline practical things. Okay. First thing we need to do is we need to learn how to listen to the apostles. Okay? Learn how to listen to the apostles. This is where Thomas like failed, right? He he didn't need to see Jesus as uh, risen to believe. He needed to see Jesus risen to be an apostle. But to believe, he had to listen to the apostles. And if you want to find Jesus, you have to listen to the apostles, the ones who watched Jesus and who walked with him, and actually began to write down what was witnessed in person. And when you read the Gospels and uh, you, you see the eyewitness uh, story, you see Jesus in a whole new light and he begins to move you. More than that, you'll actually begin to see Jesus from the perspective, not from distance, but the ones who were up close and personal with him. The ones who were biased by an experience with Jesus. Absolutely. Now, you also have to look at Jesus and see how patient he's been with you. I love this. Jesus comes and says, put your fingers here. Go ahead. Like, go ahead. Test me out. Like, how did Jesus actually know what Thomas had said? Right? Because Thomas 
earlier, he was like, I can't believe unless I put my fingers here and blah, 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 right? And then Jesus comes and he says the exact same words back to Thomas. Like, did, did people, like, call Jesus up? Did he get a text? It was like, Thomas doesn't believe because of this. Now, you know what I think is going on here? I think Jesus was there when Thomas said this. I think Jesus heard him. He was present. He was right there, and yet here he is. And Thomas realizes that Jesus has been listening to him all along. He's been hearing his doubts, and he knows all the stupid things that he said. And that's the same for you and I, isn't it? Where Jesus, he knows all the broken promises. He knows the flaws. And yet he shows up and he says, I love you and I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He's been patient with us all along. This begins to change our hearts towards him. But then we need to do what Thomas does. And I think this is the thing that changes Thomas's mind. We need to look at his wounds. Thomas has a remarkable focus on the wounds of Jesus. Because this is the identity of what Christ had done. See, it was the wounds that blew Thomas away. See, if Jesus just shows up and goes, believe in me, I'm God, right? Like, if he did that move, what would we do? We wouldn't, right? We'd run the other way. But what, is, what does Jesus do? He comes to Thomas wounded. You know, uh, when you're a kid and your mom, well, and, and you sense your room is a mess and you kind of feel like, I should probably take care of that. And you start heading to your room, right? And you're like, I think I'm going to have to spend a couple hours here dealing with this. And then on your way, you're like footsteps from your door and your mom says, Hey, Matt, clean your room. What do you do? You go make a sandwich, don't you? Like, you're like, forget that. Like, I'm going to clean my room because I want to clean my room, not because you told me to clean my room, right? And, I've, and, and so God wasn't so foolish to just send one more teacher. You know why? Because... We didn't listen to the teachers and we didn't listen to the prophets. The only sight that turns our ambivalence towards God is a wounded God. See, we really want him, but we want in our hearts, we say, I don't want to have to give up my independence. And we hang on to that until we see a God who's given up his independence. And he comes to us as one wounded. It's the sight of divinity at our service. It's a God who's been run through and it begins to blast away your fears and turn your trust towards him because it's a suffering Messiah who says you can give up your fears. I've entered into your world and I've experienced what you've experienced and I've given up my rights so that I can establish and heal you. Because he's been wounded for us. And so often we want to look at God and go, you're so far off. And we have to experience so much pain and evil and suffering. And the wounds of Jesus say, no, I've entered in to the suffering. I've entered into the pain and I've allowed evil to do its worst to me. I've become subject to it so that I can conquer it and so that I can heal you. And when you see the wounds of Jesus, you see he's entered our pain, he's endured the worst. We drop our guard, don't we? And we find that a wounded God is a God I can trust to not just wound me. And lastly, we have to drop our conditions altogether. I, I, again, like I love Caravaggio's painting, but I don't think he got it right because Jesus says, you saw and believed just the same way that John saw the empty tomb and believed. And so Thomas didn't end up doing what he demanded. He demanded to touch. And yet he realized as a believer that he had demanded a condition on God. That God says, you, don't, you can drop it. You can trust me. And whenever you and I say, I'll come to you, Lord, if, I'll come to you, Lord, if, it's the if that's really God in our lives. It's the if that we really trust and that's really ultimate. And so no ifs when we come to Jesus because 
of what he's done for me and for you. Because you see his wounds and you see his patience and you've listened to the apostles. You can drop your conditions and you come to him as he is. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to come to him, the wounded God, who we can trust at communion. So we're going to ask uh, the students to come bring us communion this morning, the band to come lead us, to proclaim what the wounds of the Messiah have done for us. And, and we see that when we come to this wounded God, we're not just coming to God, but we're coming to a God-man. God who has been crucified in our place to deal the death blow to sin and to death itself. And he's been raised to life so we can come in faith, even amidst the questions, because we've seen his marks of utter love and utter holiness. And we can come now to his table where we remember that his wounds are there for our healing that his death was there for our forgiveness and that his cross was there for our cleansing. And we proclaim it by taking the body, or the, the, the bread that represents his body and taking the cup that represents his blood shed for sin. So as they pass communion this morning, would you hold it in your hands? We'll take it together as we proclaim his wounds for us in just a moment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are a God who is trustworthy at the core. A God to whom we can bring our deepest questions and most gnarly doubts. You can handle it and you invite us to trust you by showing us your Son and his cross and his victorious resurrection. We trust you, Jesus, and ask that you would nourish our faith as we take this bread and cup together. In Jesus' name, amen.